Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome this morning. It's just really great to have you here with us today. Uh, my name is David Bennett, and I'm uh, part of the team here at Life Church. And this morning, I'm going to take the opportunity to speak about something that uh, I'm very passionate about and have been passionate about for a long time, uh, and that is the whole area of worship. When I say the whole area, I don't mean I'm going to talk about the whole area uh, because I don't think we've got uh, 17 hours available to us this morning. Um, but I want to talk about worship. I've been part of the worship team here in this church for 23 years now. I know, I know. I was actually only four um, <laughs> when I started. Um, and for, for 16 of those years, I've, I've been part of leading the team. And uh, for five or six years before that, I was leading the youth worship team. And it may surprise some of you that over those 23 years, occasionally, uh, I've found that some people have slightly different opinions about worship and music than other people. And sometimes, just every now and then, people are willing to share those opinions with other people, which is really great as well. Um, Often, though, those opinions have been expressed to me in the form of questions, and more often than not, those questions usually start with the word, why? Why do we sing this song? Or why don't we sing that song? That's quite a common question. Why do we start the service with fast songs? Why is it so dark? Why is it so light? Why are the guitars so quiet? Why are the guitars so loud? I've had that question, both those questions asked of me after the same service, uh, which is quite a tough one to answer. Um, why, do we, why do we use lighting? Why do we use cameras? Why? Why do we do these things? And then every now and then, the other question that comes up regularly is, what does that line in that song mean? All right, that's the other question. And I have to say, overall, I'm pretty happy that most of the questions that come my way about worship start with the word, why? Because when it comes to what, when, and how kind of questions, I can pretty much guarantee that I'm going to get it wrong, make mistakes, and make bad decisions along the way. But at least with why questions, if I answer those questions, and even if you still think I'm wrong, at least you know I'm wrong with a purpose, which I think, you know, a visionary in my wrongness, um, which is good. But this morning, there's just a, uh, just a couple of ideas that I just want to bring to you this morning that might help you understand some of the why in terms of what decisions we make around worship together here as a church. So I'm going to make an attempt on that. I hope that's okay. I want to start by looking at one of the only passages that's recorded in the Gospels where Jesus spoke directly about worship. It's a passage in John chapter 4 where Jesus has an encounter with a Samaritan woman, which in itself is already incredible, right? Because a, a Jewish man does not talk to a Samaritan woman, but he did. And he's having this amazing conversation with her when the woman brings up the topic of worship. We're going to read this passage here. John 4, verses 20 to 24. So tell me, she says, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. 
But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Dear woman, Jesus says, your, your question's got things around, around the wrong way. The location of your worship is not the essential element. The setting of your worship, the environment of your worship is not the most important thing. The object of your worship, now that's what matters. But the time is coming to worship the Father, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but to worship in spirit and in truth. It's not the external things, it's the internal things. The Father's looking for those who will worship him in that way. So that, for me, is a foundational concept for worship. It's my desire that when we gather together to worship as a church, that we would worship in spirit and in truth. Great, but what does that mean? I think to worship in truth is relatively straightforward to kind of get your head around. We should worship by expressing biblical truths, by singing songs that are based firmly in Scripture. The words that we sing need to be words full of truth, and also I think they need to point to Jesus, who is the truth, right? Those are the words. But also, for us to worship in truth, I believe it requires understanding so that we can sing with integrity. What am I singing about? What, what's the meaning of this song? We need an understanding and knowledge of God, an understanding and knowledge of his word, but also an understanding and knowledge of the meaning of the songs that we're singing to be able to worship in truth. But sometimes that's easier said than done, isn't it? I don't know about you, but Sometimes I think, I feel like I don't have a full and complete understanding and knowledge of God, right? Sometimes I would say I, I don't have a full and complete understanding of his word, right? But sometimes it's not immediately clear, even when we have a few words on the screen. Sometimes you go, I'm not entirely sure I know exactly what that means. So why is that? Why do we have words on the screen sometimes that maybe we don't fully immediately understand? What's that about? Well, here's what I believe. I believe worship is a response to God. In fact, worship can be a response to anything. We see something as valuable, and so we give it worth. We worship it. So the songs that we sing are songs that have been written by people as a response to God. They've been struck by or had a revelation of or had an inspiration about a particular characteristic of God, like maybe his grace or his mercy or his holiness or his love. Or maybe they've had a revelation or an inspiration from a particular passage of Scripture. Maybe they were reading the 23rd Psalm or or the Lord's Prayer. And they've attempted to express that revelation or inspiration by putting it into words. That's what the songs are. And some of us relate and understand some of those words better than other sets of words. And some of us will relate to and understand different sets of words better than others of us will, right? But consider for a moment the task that a worship songwriter has in front of them. What if I felt inspired to write a song about about God's gift of redemption and grace? But the problem with that is that in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15... Paul writes, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, or for his gift too wonderful for words, or thanks be to God for his inexpressible 
gift or for his unspeakable gift. So how do I I write a song about that? Okay, well, maybe what if I was inspired to write a song about the greatness of God? Let's do that instead. But in Psalm 145, David writes, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Oh, okay, well, maybe I could write a song about the peace of God. But Philippians 4 says that the peace of God transcends all understanding. Ah, what about the wisdom of God? Maybe I could write a song about that. But Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Okay. Well, then maybe I could write a song about the power of God. But in Job 26, Job is writing this, this passage. He tells me that God suspended the earth over nothing, that he covers the moon with his clouds, that the pillars of the heavens quake at his rebuke, that his power churns up the sea, that his breath clears the skies. But then in verse 14, he says, these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power. Isn't that a great, great verse? He clears the breaths with his skies. He suspends the earth over nothing, but that's just a whisper of his power. How could we possibly understand the thunder of his power? So, so how do we capture in words things that are beyond our understanding? How do we fully express and fully understand things that are inexpressible, unsearchable, and unfathomable so that we can worship in truth. All we can do, really, is just capture a fragment, a sliver, just a glimpse of God with the words of our songs. Can I just hit hit pause for a moment here? I just want to encourage you with something. I want to ask you to do something with me. Look for the truth in a song. Look for the truth in a song. If you're struck by a song or a line that you go, I don't understand that, or even at first, I don't agree with that, then investigate it further. Try and figure out, well, what is it trying to say? What does it really mean? Can I sing those words in a way that I can sing with integrity? Is there a way of understanding those words that actually expresses truth? Or instead of, which I find has happened in in the past, people looking for ways to discredit a song because of a few words that they didn't think matched quite what they thought was truth. Look, I want to give you a couple of examples. We already sung this morning this amazing song, I Will Boast in Christ Alone. And the verses have pretty much taken ideas from Hebrews 9, which is great. I don't think we have a lot of songs that, uh, that are from Hebrews. But the, the first line of the second verse says, Love will never lose its power, or my failures could not erase. That's, those are the words. But if you, at first glance, it seems to suggest that love can't erase my failures. Love will never lose its power. All my failures could not erase. But it's just a poetic way of writing something in reverse. My failures cannot erase the power of his love. Because Christ made one sacrifice once for all. I don't need to keep coming back and making a sacrifice for sin because his sacrifice was once and for all, as it teaches us in Hebrews 9. So I have to find a way to understand how do I sing that line of that's how I sing it. Um, There's been other ones in the the past. Uh, If you're old enough, you might remember a song that we sang called Above All. 
above all powers, above all kings. Great song, but at the end of the chorus, it had a line, and it said, you took the fall, talking about Jesus, and thought of me above all. And the way it was first expressed, I, thought, I don't think I agree with that. Jesus said, not, not my will, but your will. He went to the cross to obey the will of the Father. That was the primary thing. He did it to save us, sure, but he did it because he was obedient to the Father. So I can't sing that he took the fall and thought of me above all. And then all I did in my mind was at a full stop. You took the fall and thought of me. That's fair enough. I can sing that with integrity. And then above all was just the tagline of the song that we sang multiple times throughout the song because he is above all kings, above all thrones. Right? So I had to find a way that I could sing those lines that at first go, I don't quite agree with that. But it wasn't that I didn't agree with it necessarily. It's just that I hadn't necessarily understood what those lines were trying to tell me. Does that make sense? And if you get to the end of that process and go, I still don't think I can sing this with integrity, then just make a joyful noise because at least we know that's biblical, right? It's biblical. So just do that. Just, you've just got to do it joyfully. Um, that's the important part. Okay. So we must worship in truth. But Jesus didn't just say true worshipers will worship God in truth. He said they would worship in spirit and in truth. Because true worship engages our mind but also our heart and our soul. Mark 12.30, Jesus says that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's quite a sentence, isn't it? I don't know if English teachers would be very happy if you wrote a sentence structured like that, but it's trying to express everything. Love the Lord your God with everything. And it's just split them up. It's, you can't put commas and, and semicolons and stuff and prioritize them because it's, it's and, 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 and. Do it with all of those things. And that's what we should be doing in worship, to worship him in spirit and in truth, to love him with every part of our being. Our worship should be passionate and full of zeal. But at the same time, we should worship in truth, have an understanding of what we're saying and a knowledge of the God we are worshiping. And we need to have both for it to be true worship. If we worship in spirit without truth, it might be full of passion, but with no truth, it could become shallow and empty. If we worship in truth, but without spirit, then it, become, it can become joyless and passionless. But the truth of God has limitless, eternal value. So shouldn't we worship him with limitless, eternal passion? Doesn't that make sense? We're to worship him in spirit, and in truth. We must get the attitude of the heart and the understanding of the mind working together in order to have true God-honoring worship. And that's what I desire, that's what we desire when we gather together here to worship. It's the internal, not the external, that matters most. Now the problem with that, of course, is when you meet together, you actually have to do some external things. Right? If you are on your own and having... A just worshiping God on your own and in your own intimate place. This kind of, you, you don't actually need a whole lot, any sort of thing to structure that necessarily because it's you and your innermost thoughts. But when we're together and we're worshiping together, we actually kind of need something to hang it all on to do it together. We don't share a hive mind, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, there's no mental telepathy going on. We're going to, we have to worship some, together, so we need a structure, something external that we're all going to do at the same time. 
And so throughout the history of the church, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here. And I don't mean our church, I mean the church over 2,000 years. People have been striving to find the way. What's the best way? What's the best style? What's the best form? What's the most appropriate thing we can do in order for us to worship in spirit and in truth? Did you know in most early church movements, no musical instruments were allowed to be used in worship at all? It was singing only. That was the only way to worship that they considered was God-honoring. In fact, it wasn't just any singing, it was unison, right? One note, one note, everybody singing the same note at the same time. Some of you know what I'm talking about, you know, like plain chant, plain song, or you might have heard of it called Gregorian chant. I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate something like, you know... Um, you know, that sort of stuff, right? That was church worship. And it evokes a kind of image, right? Like monks in brown robes and maybe the bowl, bowl cut kind of thing going on. Beads and... That, it's, it invokes that image, whether that image is true or not. But that was worship in the early centuries of the church. Unaccompanied, no instruments, unison singing. In fact, it wasn't until the ninth century that they started to introduce an unprecedented second vocal part. Right? So it took 800 years to add a harmony. Um, but can you imagine the controversy that that must have caused when it first happened, the scandal? Can't you sort of see all these monks gathering together for morning mass and they start singing and then all of a sudden one of them starts singing a different note? You know, be like, what was friends thinking? It's like, shh, come on, man, you sing the tune. We've got to... so that's not true worship. Come on, Thelonious, stop it, all right? Sing the right note. But eventually it took off, and it spread through churches, and that became normal, that we would have two-part singing. So maybe now, maybe now the church has figured out this must be what true worship sounds like, right? Because now we've got a second part, so that's going to be more God-honoring. But then multiple parts started happening, what they call, what we call polyphonic music, where multiple uh, vocal lines happened together. That became standard in the church, and they must have been really pleased with themselves then, right? Now, now we've got polyphonic music. Now, that's really God-honoring music now. But it didn't stop there, because then the church started adding instruments to worship music, and the organ was one of the main instruments to first make its way into worship music, but that took a few hundred years as well because church leaders originally disapproved of its use because it was the utmost symbol of worldliness. That was the reason. I know, nothing says worldly extravagance like a pipe organ. <laughs> I totally agree. Some of you agree. I have nothing against pipe organ music. If you hear a well-built, well-constructed pipe organ played by an expert, I wanted to say by a well-constructed organist. That, <laughs> that didn't... Yeah, it's an amazing sound, right? But it took a few hundred years for the church to go, yeah, that's okay. In fact, then, in 1287, they said, not only is that okay now, but actually, no, 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 organ is the only instrument that we're allowed in church because that's the only instrument that could help us have God-honoring true worship, right? But then, as more time goes by, more instruments are invented. You know, hundreds of years later, the piano comes along. And wind and string instruments and brass instruments start getting introduced to the church. Well, surely, God, it's worship now that we've got these things. And then in more recent times, of course, uh, we've got the electric guitars and keyboards and drums, and we get full worship bands into churches. So surely now it must be true worship, right? 
Well, what about backing tracks and synths and computers? Would, would that make it true worship? Or maybe we need a better sound system and gruntier subwoofers. That would, that would get us there to that point where we can finally worship in spirit and truth. Or maybe it's not just about the sound. Maybe it's the way things look as well. So over the centuries, the church has come up with all sorts of different ways to express worship visually. Um, what if we built a, an enormous pulpit and put a gigantic Bible on it? Would that make the congregation enter into true worship? Or what about some beautiful carvings or symbols or emblems? Perhaps that's what will make it true worship. Maybe at the back of the room we could put an amazing and intricate stained glass window, something incredibly beautiful that maybe all the colors that, that would make as the sun shone through it. That's what we need so it can be true worship. Or maybe we need some modern technology now. Maybe instead of a hymn book, we could use an OHP and we could put you know, something really modern and put some words up on the screen with a light shining behind it. Or maybe we need, uh, instead of a stained glass window, perhaps if we had some, some lights that we could shine different colors instead of that and we could have them moving and flash and stuff like that. What about smoke and fog machines? Surely that would make it true worship now? What if we had cameras or projectors and moving images? Or maybe if we put painters and artists and sculptors and dancers on the stage while we sing, would that make it true worship, God? Have we got there yet? And then, of course, somebody thinks, well, maybe we've gone too far. What if we took the artists and sculptors off the stage? Now, now, now it would be true worship, right? Or what if we, what if we stopped using the lights? Surely if we stopped using the lights, that would make it true worship. Or maybe, what if we took the band and we put them at the back of the room instead of the front of the room? That would be when it would become true worship, surely then. Or maybe we don't use any electric instruments. Maybe only acoustic instruments are the things that we need to use to make it true worship. God, please help us. When does it become true worship? When we worship in spirit and in truth when we carry the right attitude in our hearts and the right understanding in our minds, that is when it becomes true worship. So we still have all these choices to make, of course, when it comes to our corporate worship. What does it sound like? What does it look like? And as long as we are worshiping in spirit and in truth, I think those choices can become valid. Because we either choose to attempt to make the mood of a song reflect the truth of the words we're singing, or we choose not to. So we, we choose to write an energetic song declaring that Jesus is alive. Or we might choose to attempt to have our facial expression and our posture reflect the truth of the words that we are singing, or we would choose not to. So we might clap during that energetic song because we want our body and our expression to reflect the truth of the words that Jesus is alive. We could, we could either choose to use lighting that attempts to reflect the truth of the words, or we choose not to. Those seem to be our choices that we can make. We either choose to attempt to have in alignment our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength as we lift up our voices to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or we choose not to have those things line up with each other. But we choose to make that attempt. And I call it an attempt because we don't get it right all the time. But we choose to use anything we can that might encourage people to lift up their hearts, their soul, their mind, and their strength to heaven. 
Now, there's a picture given to us in the book of Revelation that I read quite a lot uh, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 of what corporate worship gatherings look like in heaven. And in fact, it's really the only large gathering for worship that we really see much of in the, in the New Testament. There's some other things that are a bit like it, but this is, this is on a different kind of scale. And I want to describe it to you this morning, and I want you to try and picture it as we go. You can read all of this in Revelation 4 and 5. So it starts by telling us that there's a, there's a throne. And somebody who is sitting on the throne has the appearance of jasper and ruby and carnelian, which are all precious stones and crystals, all red gemstones. And then it says that there's a rainbow that resembles an emerald that is encircling the throne. And even try and get that image right. I've got a rainbow, that sounds like one thing, but it resembles an emerald. Well, an emerald doesn't look like a rainbow. And then it encircles the throne, which rainbows and emeralds don't encircle. But this is just trying to describe what this picture looks like. And then surrounding the throne, there are 24 other thrones, and sitting on those thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white with gold crowns on their heads. And then emanating from the center throne, there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne is what looks like a sea of crystal glass. Are you picturing this yet? Isn't this just the most sort of amazing setup you've ever seen? I mean, thrones and rainbows and emeralds and rubies and gems and gold crowns. And there's all this different colored light. There's some red, there's some, some green, there's some white. There's some sparkling, there's some flashing. There's, there's a sea of crystal glass. It's like the best lighting rig and smoke machine setup I've ever heard of. But it carries on describing this picture. And in the center around the throne, there are these four creatures. These are amazing, incredible creatures like nothing you've ever seen. I mean, they're they're covered with eyes. They have six wings, and each of them has a different face. And day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come day and night, never ceasing. I get this idea that these creatures are looking at God on the throne and they're so overwhelmed by his holiness that they can't help but utter, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But when they finish saying it, they look at God again And they realize, Lord, we only caught a glimpse before of your holiness. Now I understand. I said it just then. I said that you were holy, but I didn't really quite understand it all. So I've got to say it again. God, you are holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But then by the time they finish saying it again, they just out of the corner of their eye catch a glimpse again of the throne and go, God, I thought I knew, I thought I understood how holy you were, but now I look at you again and I realize there's more. You are truly holy, 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 day and night, never ceasing. Amazing. But every time that these four creatures give glory to God, 
the 24 elders who are sitting on the throne are in, they respond. They fall down from their throne and they take off their crowns and they lay them before God's throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. But they don't just say it once, they say it every time the creatures worship, they start doing this. So it's like they, they say it, that you're worthy, and then they go to pick up their crowns, and they go to sit on their thrones again, and they, they see God again and say, oh God, I'm not worthy again to take this crown. I'm going to lay my crown before you again and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And just when they go to stand up again, guess what happens? They see God again. They hear the creatures saying, holy, holy, holy. They put their crowns down again. You are worthy. I thought I understood your worthiness, but God, I'm just beginning to see how worthy you are. And then this vision continues, and it says, in the center of the throne, the Lamb, Jesus, appears, encircled by the four creatures and the 24 elders. And when he appears, they sing a new song. And they sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You are worthy because you were slain. And then this vision expands out to this massive scene. Because now it says there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels encircling the throne and the creatures and the elders, and they join in the worship. And they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's a lot of ands. Again, I can't express all the things that you're worthy of, but here's just some of them. You are worthy of power and wealth and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the lamb. The power is yours. And then, if you can imagine it, the vision gets bigger because beyond the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, it gets grander. It gets even more epic because it says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We get to join in the song. We get to worship the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. Praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then there's still more. There's one more little verse at the end of chapter 5, which I'm always amazed by. Because after all of this, after all this worship, the, the throne and the four creatures and the 24 elders and 10,000 times 10,000 angels and all of creation, singing, praising, giving glory, worshiping God. Do you know what happens next? The four living creatures say, Amen. And then, after all of that, the elders fall down and worship. Because they can't do anything else. Because he's so worthy. He is so holy that after all of creation worships him. The only thing they can do in response to all of that is to fall down and worship again. Tim, could I have you come up? That's a picture of what worship in heaven is going to look like. And when we gather together here to worship, we, no, we, we can't do a sea of crystal glass, although I'd love to ask the tech team to 
to accomplish that. That'd be awesome. And we don't have four living creatures with eyes all over them and, and wings, but we do have the presence of God in this place. And when we sing together and when we sing in spirit and in truth, we're trying to just catch a glimpse of God's worthiness, to catch just a fragment of his holiness, to just see the outer fringe of his power. We want to try and express the inexpressible. We're just starting to understand, God, you're so holy. Jesus, you are so worthy. I will boast in Christ alone. I see it now that only you were worthy to make that sacrifice. It was only your blood that could wash away my sins. There is no one else who is worthy. There is nothing else that could have been done. It was only you. There is nothing else I can boast in apart from Christ. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Let's do that together this morning.